compared pastors at Christmas time to flight attendants. You've all been there, I'm sure, on the flight. An attendant calling your attention to present to you some important, potentially life-preserving information. And literally, no one listens. Everyone puts their earbuds in, continues talking on, familiar with what they've heard, and so decide to ignore this important, life-preserving information. Well, pastors can feel that way. Preaching at Christmas time can feel similar. We're heralding important, life-preserving truths, and yet for many of us, we've heard the Christmas story not just dozens of times, but hundreds of times. And dulled by that sense of familiarity, we can be tempted to tune out. And yet, uh, this Advent season, as we rehearse the Christmas story, paying particular attention to the rich and wonderful blessings that flow out of Christmas, out of the fact that God himself was born a baby, it's my prayer and hope that we would all be moved afresh by the same story to rejoice in our God, our God who is infinite, mysterious, and beyond all comprehension, and yet who has made himself known by being born in human flesh. And in that vein, last week, we considered Mary's response to the news that miraculously she would be born mother of Jesus, mother of God in human flesh. And as we considered Mary's song, we were introduced to two other characters, Elizabeth and Zachariah, who had received their own little miracle. Elizabeth and Zachariah were childless. They were advanced in years and barren. Uh, Not only do they not currently have children, but they would never have children. But an angel appeared to Zechariah, telling them that they would conceive and have a child. Yet, Zechariah disbelieved. And before we move on, even though we're still just in the context, uh, it's important to note that Zechariah is an example not just for non-Christians, but for all of us. Zechariah was a priest. He knew all of the stories of God. He could rehearse the great deliverances of God for his people. And yet even he struggled with unbelief. And so too, all of our hearts, even Christians, are prone to unbelief. We need to be on guard against that ever-present temptation to disbelieve the promises of God. You and I are not immune to unbelief, and one of the best ways to guard our heart, to fight against unbelief, is by leaning into and uh, fanning into flame the things that strengthen belief. And so this Christmas season, you may be busy with all the holiday stuff, all the family and friend activities, but let me plead with you, in the busyness of this season, don't neglect the daily disciplines of hearing from God and His Word, of communing with God through prayer. Don't neglect the importance of community. Surround yourself with people who would love you enough to peer in on how you're doing, where you can ask questions you're struggling, where you can be honest with, where where you might be tempted to go astray and disbelieve the promises of God. It's worth it. But in God's kindness, despite Zachariah's unbelief, they did still, in fact, conceive a child. And as we heard read this morning, that child was finally born. And in those days, a child's birth was a community event. When they went to go and present the child in the temple, the whole community had gathered around to celebrate, to rejoice with Elizabeth and Zechariah that this child had been born. And apparently, 
Naming the child was also a community event. Everyone began to suggest, this child's name is going to be Zachariah Jr., right? But Mary or Elizabeth insists his name will in fact be John. And as one pastor points out, that should have ended it. But the family and friends, they push back. They're like, what kind of name is John? We don't like that name. Nobody in the family's named John. And they even tried to pull rank by motioning to Zechariah. And the fact that they had to make signs indicates, actually, that the punishment for his unbelief was not only that he couldn't hear, but that he couldn't, or that he couldn't speak, but also that he couldn't hear. And so he had made adjustments to his life over those nine months. He has a writing tablet handy, and after they motion to him, sign to him, he writes with the emphasis, John is his name. And at that precise moment of faith and obedience and mercy, God lifts his punishment and Zechariah begins to speak. And what comes out of his mouth is amazing. Where formerly Zechariah disbelieved, now he believes. Where not only he does he believe, but he also blesses God. Zechariah's nine months of suffering has not been in vain. His tongue is loose not to complain against God, but to bless God. There's no indication that Zechariah is bitter for his discipline. He's only grateful for what God has done. And here, brothers and sisters, I want us to notice that our suffering will do one of two things. It will either make us bitter or it will make us better. And it made Zechariah better. In these nine months, he had learned probably more about his own heart and about God than he ever knew before. And the proof of that is in the praise he offers to God. The Lord be blessed. And so I'd ask us this morning, how are we handling suffering? Is it working into our hearts deeper thoughts of God's goodness or harder thoughts about our circumstances? Are we growing warmer or colder towards God? Are we growing in bitterness or growing in dependence? Suffering only sometimes will be a result of our sin, but always God intends to use our suffering to draw us deeper into relationship with him always intending and hoping that we would emerge from our suffering, believing in him more fully, trusting in him more unreservedly, and giving him all of our allegiance and trust. And just as then Zechariah had reason not only to believe, but to bless the Lord despite his suffering, so too do all of us have reason to bless the Lord. And as the people respond to Zechariah's blessing of God, their question changes. No longer are they asking, what will the child's name be? But rather, what then will this child be? And in response, Zachariah opens his mouth to sing, blessing God with great joy. In our passage for this morning, Luke 1, 67 through 79. And it's for this reason that this passage has come to be known as the Benedictus. For the first word out of Zechariah's mouth in Latin is benedictus, which simply means good word or blessing. And so when you bless someone, typically what we mean is we're invoking God's favor upon them, wishing that God would show them kindness. But blessing can also mean to speak well of someone or to praise someone. And so when you're applying the word to God himself, it doesn't mean we're invoking God's favor upon God. No, we're speaking well of God. We're praising God. We're delighting in who he is and what he's done and making sure everyone knows about it. And so as we turn our attention to Zachariah's blessing, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. 
And we'll see in our text three reasons we should bless the Lord. We should bless the Lord because He has visited and redeemed His people, because He has been faithful to keep His promises, and because in His tender mercy He has revealed His salvation. But before we take a look at our text, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, reviewing for many of us what is a familiar story, please prevent us from being unmoved by these glorious truths. And instead, by the power of your spirit working through your word, cause our hearts to soar with love, with rejoicing, so that we would treasure Christ more deeply. Please help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately, so that in this Christmas season, we would treasure Christ for drawing near to us, for redeeming us, for being faithful to all his promises, and for revealing himself to us that we might know him and love him. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 67. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please use one of our community Bibles. That'll help you to follow along. Uh, If you're not familiar with the scriptures, you can find our passage on page 856 of our community Bibles. You'll be looking for a big, bold one. That's a chapter followed by a small number 67. That's a verse. And once you've found it, I invite you to take a moment to prepare your own heart to receive God's word. You know what reasons, what circumstances, what burdens would prevent you from blessing the Lord, what hardships and sorrows. Ask that the Lord would give you reason to sing today, that the Lord would give you reason to bless him. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Look with me at verse 67 and 68. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Here we see that we should bless the Lord because he has visited and redeemed his people. We should bless the Lord because he has visited and redeemed his people. In response again to the people's question, what then shall this child be? The Holy Spirit fills Zechariah, inspiring him to prophesy by song. And shockingly, he immediately does not begin to answer what sort of child this shall be, but he begins to sing of the goodness and greatness of his God. And he begins by exclaiming then, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for... And that little word for indicates that everything that will follow in Zechariah's song is a reason we ought to bless the Lord, a reason that he's singing. And the first reason he offers is, again, that the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Now, one thing I want us to notice here before we move much further is that even though Jesus has not yet come, even though Jesus has not yet redeemed his people, Zechariah speaks of what God is going to do in the past tense. Though it's not yet happened, this redemptive work is so certain, Zechariah sings of it, as one pastor says, and the prophetic past tense, so that what he sang about was as good as done. 
And yet what was as good as done for Zechariah has actually been done for us. And it's this visitation and redemption that Christmas is all about. It had been 400 years since the people of God had heard a prophecy from God. But now in the span of nine months, two boys had been conceived. One had been born. This one would prepare the way of the Lord by speaking on behalf of the Lord. And the second, who had yet to be born yet, would make God fully known because he himself was God in human flesh. God was drawing near to his people. And this is the true joy of the incarnation. That God would be in our midst. Emmanuel, as we sang earlier. God with us. God becomes one of us. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The transcendent, infinite, holy other God. A God that could not be known unless he made himself known. Has drawn near to us as one of us. So that now we can celebrate the fact that in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, God is always with us. He has always drawn near. And although in our sin, the scriptures are clear that none of us would ever seek him, he hasn't waited for us to seek him. He has visited us. He has drawn near. And this is what we are created to enjoy. From the very beginning, we are created to know God. To love God, to enjoy relationship with Him. And this is what God is bringing about as Jesus is born a baby. But as this first line opens, He's not only visited, He's not only drawn near, He's also redeemed us. And this is economic language, referring to someone buying someone out of slavery so that they would be free. And ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, we have all been slaves to our sin. We are powerless to free ourselves from it. We are enslaved to desires that we admit are wrong, that are not good. And yet this is why God has visited his people. He has come to do what we were powerless to do. Jesus came so that by his precious blood shed on the cross, we could be freed from our sin. We could be freed from our slavery and we could become his. Freed not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. So dear brothers and sisters, if this Advent season feels mundane, just another repetition of what we do every single year, and I'd encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to help you be amazed by these truths. I mean, how amazing. Not only God become flesh, dwell among us, draw near to us, but that he would buy us out of our slavery so that we could become his. And not only should we be amazed that the God of the universe has drawn near to us, we ought to rejoice. We ought to bless him and praise his holy name. He has visited us, and by the shedding of his blood, he has made us his own. And so now we can know him. We can enjoy him. And whenever we feel lonely, whenever we feel alone, perhaps this Christmas season, as we look to the holidays and remember loved ones who are no longer with us, feel the tears and the sorrow, we're reminded that reality is we're never alone. Jesus has promised he will be with us always to the end of the age. And so if you have trusted in Christ by his spirit, Christ is present with you. He is there with us to comfort us and be with us so that even when we feel lonely, the reality is we're never alone. And so we should bless the Lord 
because he has visited and redeemed his people. Second, look with me at verse 69. He continues, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here we see that we should bless the Lord because he has been faithful to keep his promises. We should bless the Lord because he has been faithful to keep his promises. Verse 69 begins with the word and indicating a second reason we ought to bless the Lord. And these seven verses are filled with the ways that God has been faithful to keep his promises. Promises we find woven throughout all the Old Testament scriptures. And although we'll focus in on two here, it's worth remembering. This began all the way back in Genesis. Literally, as soon as God's people had rebelled against him, he promises that a child of Eve, an offspring of the woman, would conquer the serpent. And then moving forward to Genesis 12, he then appears to Abram and promises that through Abram and his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through his offspring, all people would be blessed. And moving forward, we begin to wonder, which offspring will this be? Will this be Judah? No. He was sinful, rebellious. Will this be Moses? After all, they begin to anticipate this amazing interaction with God. But no, Moses has fallen and they begin to anticipate a prophet like Moses who had yet to come. And we look at all the judges who would reign and lead God's people after him, wondering each time, and yet each time, flawed and fallen in some way. Then we come to King David. Literally the king that all other kings would be measured by. But no, not King David either. He's sinful, broken, just like the rest of us. And yet God promises to him, There would be a king from his line who would reign forever. And we go from king to king to king, wondering, will this be the one? Will this be the one? And the prophets begin to offer hope to Israel as this drags on, reminding them, turn from your sin, trust God. A king is coming, a king who will deliver you not only from your enemies, but from your sin. We find in Isaiah, this is a king who would bring peace to all the earth. We find in Ezekiel, this would be a shepherd who would give himself for the sake of the people. And finally, we come to the Gospels. We see all that God has promised has finally been fulfilled through the birth of Jesus and his incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. But what specific promises does Zechariah mention? Well, first, you see that he focuses on the promise that God has kept to raise up a forever king to deliver us. God has kept his promise to raise up a forever king to deliver us. We see this in verses 69 through 72. Zechariah rejoices that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, a horn in the Bible is used to symbolize strength or power. So this is a powerful work on behalf of God's people. And this particular horn of salvation, he says, is from the house of David. And what, according to verse 71, would deliver them from all their enemies. 
And all this, according to verse 70, is spoken through the mouth of God's holy prophets. So where? Where do we find this particular Old Testament prophecy and promise? Well, most clearly, we find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. There God promises David this. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God promises David he will deliver them from all their enemies and give them a king to reign forever. And with this first coming of Jesus, this horn of salvation has been raised up. The king from the line of David who would deliver God's people from all their enemies had been born. And although Jesus was crucified on the cross, defying all the expectations of the people of Israel, it's actually on the cross that Jesus is crucified as king. And three days later, when he rises from the dead, it demonstrates his kingdom truly is an everlasting kingdom, one that defies death itself, that all who would turn from their sin and trust in him could be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light, a kingdom that would last forever. And so although God's people have not yet received rest from our political enemies as he promised David, nor have we been delivered from those who hate us as Zechariah prophesied, the reality is, as God's people anticipated the first coming of Jesus for hundreds, thousands of years, now too we anticipate the second coming of Jesus when he will judge in righteousness and make war against all those who have opposed him and his people. And yet one of the mistakes Jesus' earliest listeners made and that we too can make is to count our political enemies as our primary enemies. For Israel, it was Rome. For us, it might be the opposing political party. It might be those who disagree with us on a number of social issues. It might even be other Christians. But by the end of the passage we'll see plainly that our most foundational enemies that we need to to be delivered from are not earthly ones, but rather our most foundational enemies are our own sin and Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those he would devour. Zechariah would later make clear, we need to be delivered not just from political earthly enemies, but we need to be delivered from our sin. We need forgiveness for sin. Or as Paul would make clear in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So while it is good and right for us to look forward to the day when Jesus would return and set all things right, including political wrongs, social wrongs, spiritual wrongs, We must never lose sight of the fact that between now and then, our primary enemy is not those we disagree with. It's not those who oppose us politically. It's not even those who hate us for our faith. In fact, we should see all those people as precious people who themselves are in need of deliverance. Yet sadly, even in the Christian church, Politicians don't need to convince us of their positive vision for the future. They just need to convince us that the other side is the enemy. That the other side is evil. But as one commentator points out, one of the unexpected ways of saving people from their enemies 
is to turn enemies into friends rather than seeking to have them destroyed. And this is the paradigm of how God works until Jesus returns, reconciling enemies through the death of his son, not through the deaths of his enemies. Until Jesus comes back, what we anticipate, what we look forward to, what we pray for, is that God would reconcile us to his enemies. And then we anticipate the day when Christ comes back and destroys those who remain our enemies. So yes, we ought to cry out with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus, come. But until Jesus comes, as Jesus himself says later in Luke, bless those who persecute you and pray for those who hate you. Because God has kept his promise to raise up a forever king to deliver us. But second, he's kept his promise to bless his people so that we might serve him. He's kept his promise to bless his people so that we might serve him. We see this in verses 73 through 75. Here, Zechariah shifts his attention to the oath God swore to Abraham and through Abraham to deliver them from their enemies for a specific purpose. That is that we might serve God without fear and holiness and in righteousness. And this promise is perhaps most succinctly found in Genesis 12. There God promises Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now notice just briefly that Abraham's promise to him is a promise for deliverance. He will curse those who dishonor Abraham and his family. This is a form of deliverance. But more importantly, the reason that he promises to bless Abraham is so that through Abraham, all the families of the earth should be blessed. From the very beginning, our God has been a missionary God, seeking to bless not just one family or one nation, but literally all families, all nations of the earth. And just as our God is a missionary God, we are a missionary people. This is why we as a church partner with missionaries in our prayer and in finances. This is why we as a church value as one of our values mission. We want to be a people who not only partner with people on mission, but actually who are doing it ourselves, pursuing those who are far from Christ with love, with care, always hoping to point them to Jesus. And high school and middle school students look up here for a second. One way I've just learned that you can participate in this call to the nations is by thinking about where you go to college. I've recently learned that you can actually go to college in the Middle East, a place that is hostile towards God, who is opposed to Christ, and yet who is actually open to lots of spiritual conversations. They will take Americans into their universities and places where there are healthy churches already located. There's thriving campus ministries you can go and be a part of taking the gospel to the nations as you get educated if you're already planning to do that. So let me just commend to you If you're a middle school or high school student thinking about where you're going to go to college, think about possibly using it to be a part of our God's missionary purpose, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Both Abraham and we are blessed, not just so that God's blessing can terminate on us, but so that we can be a blessing to others, so that we might serve God without fear and in holiness and in righteousness. And the only reason we as a rebellious people can serve God without fear, 
a God who is holy, who hates and judges all sin, is because Jesus, our Deliverer, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, and received the penalty we deserved on the cross, and then rose from the dead in victory. And so now, for those who have turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, we're not only saved from our sin, so no longer afraid, but we're saved for a particular purpose. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is what God has saved us for. Not just to be saved from his wrath, not just to be saved from our sin, not just to be saved from hell, but saved for the purpose, bringing glory and honor to the name of God and all that we do. And one way we serve God right now is by giving ourselves to holy and righteous lives. This is why Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. We as Christians live holy and righteous lives, not because we're better than others, but in order to point people to Christ through the way we live, to demonstrate that the gospel actually changes us. God has kept his promise to bless his people so that we might serve him and in doing so be a blessing to others. Now stepping back to see all of that fitting together, we see our God is a God who keeps his promises. All the promises find their yes and amen in Christ. God has kept his promises, is keeping his promises, and will always keep his promises. So, we should bless him for his faithfulness. And yet one thing that's worth observing about the promises we consider from this passage to Abraham and to David is it took a long time for those promises to be fulfilled. It took roughly 2,000 years for the promises to Abraham to be fulfilled. It took roughly 1,000 years for the promises to David to be filled. And yet nevertheless, throughout all that time, God was working to bring about what he said he would, and he did. And if he has kept those promises to Abraham, to David, and to us, we can trust that God will keep all his promises, including ones that seem like they're taking an especially long time to come about, particularly the return of Christ, when he'll set all things right, delivering us not only from sin and Satan, but as Revelation says, when God will dwell with us as our God, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where death shall be no more. And will there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore? And so in those moments, when it seems like it's taking far too long for God to fulfill the things he's promised, remember what Peter writes in Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And this is not only what we should, something we should trust him with, but it's something we should praise him for. We should bless him for that he is faithful and that he is patient. So we should bless the Lord because he has been faithful to keep his promises. Finally, look with me in verse 76. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of his salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here we see we should bless the Lord because in his tender mercy, he has revealed his salvation. Bless the Lord because in his tender mercy, he has revealed his salvation. So in these verses, Zechariah shifts his attention away from directly what God is doing and now begins to answer that question that prompted this. What kind of child shall this be? And yet in turning his attention towards his son, Zechariah highlights God's mercy to us through God's plan for his son John's life. Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, would be a prophet of the Most High God who would prepare the way for the Lord. And John would primarily do that by making known the salvation of God to God's people, a salvation wrapped up in our need to be forgiven. This is why, from the wilderness, John would say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Why? For the kingdom of God is near. Although our salvation in God's kingdom encompasses far more than forgiveness from sin, we must never forget that our most basic need is to be forgiven. We have offended an infinitely holy and righteous God. We justly deserve His judgment. And our only hope for facing Him is that our sin would be forgiven, that our wickedness would not be counted against us. And this is exactly what God has made possible for us through Jesus' incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. In the incarnation, Jesus identifies with us so He could represent us. In the crucifixion, Jesus dies receiving the penalty we deserved. And in the resurrection three days later, he demonstrates that death itself, the consequence of sin, has been defeated so that we can be forgiven. But according to verse 79, we would never have known this salvation if God had not revealed it to us. We were all sitting in darkness This is one reason why there is no room for pride in our biblical knowledge or the depth of our theological insight. Sadly, far too often it's the case that as we grow in our knowledge of God, of what Christ has done for us, our knowledge of Scripture, we begin to look down upon people who don't know as much as we do, who don't understand as well as we do, or who aren't able to articulate as well as we do what we've learned. But what this passage and passages like it teach us that we have no reason to look down on those who don't know as much as we do. For all of us are like people sitting in darkness under the shadow of death. We would not know what we know. We would not understand what we understand. We would not be able to articulate what we can articulate if God had not first revealed it to us. This reality ought to humble us rather than puff us up. This ought to produce joy and gratitude for what God has revealed to us, rather than contempt for what he's not revealed to others. This ought to lead us to patience for others, rather than frustration for what they've not heard, what they've not seen, or what they've not understood. Because all of us are portrayed in this passage as those sitting in darkness, as those under the shadow of death, as those who have lost their way, needing a guide on the path. We're portrayed here as a caravan that's lost its way, overtaken by night, that can't figure out where it should go, and that needs someone in the darkness to guide them. This is a powerful portrait of our hopeless and helpless condition. 
and to look at it. John is sent to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He is sent to guide our feet into the way of peace. By nature, we are born in darkness. We cannot see our hope. We cannot see our salvation. We cannot see our God unless God himself speaks, unless God himself gives light. And the beauty of Christmas is that God has, in fact, spoken. He has told us how we might have hope in the midst of darkness. And not only has he spoken through the prophets, not only has he spoken through Zechariah, not only has he spoken through John, who had prepared the way for the Lord, but he himself has spoken most fully through Jesus, who is God himself. He has made himself fully known so that when we look upon Christ, we see God himself. So dear friends, if you feel the hopelessness of darkness, the shadow of death on your soul, the good news of Christmas is that you don't have to. As one pastor puts it, in our sin, we sit in darkness like a prisoner locked in an underground dungeon. But when Christ comes into our hearts, he brings light. All of a sudden, everything shines. Darkness flees. Death is defeated. And salvation then brings peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. And peace within ourselves. And so I'd ask you this morning, have you experienced this peace? Have you experienced this light shining on your soul? The good news of Christmas is that Jesus has come to us so that we can now come to him in repentance and faith. And so he invites us to come so that we can be redeemed, delivered, renewed, and forgiven. So friends, come though you have nothing. Come because Christ has been given for you. And if you have questions about what it looks like to come to Christ, please come talk with me. Talk with any of our members. It would be our great joy to talk with you about how you can find this kind of hope, light, and freedom in Christ. But why? Why, when, we're, when we were sitting in darkness, why did God send a messenger to make known his light? Why, when we owed God such a great debt for our sin, why did he offer us forgiveness? Why, when we were slaves to our sin, why did he redeem us? And Why? And we were so far off, enemies of God even. Why did he draw near to us? Why did he visit us? We find the answer in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of God. The God who has visited and redeemed us. The God who has been faithful to keep all his promises. The God who has revealed his salvation to us while we were in darkness. He has done all this and so much more because he is a tender and merciful God. God revealed himself first to Moses in the Old Testament. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, as well as my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, what is your view of God? Do you see him as an authoritative, stern tyrant? A God who is far off, removed and disinterested from the concerns of your life? Or do you see him as a merciful and loving father whose heart is overwhelmed with compassion 
mercy and tenderness towards you. Are you a sinner? He has mercy for you. Are you suffering? He's tender towards you. Are you broken? He has compassion for you. And if this is something you struggle to see, to understand, and to feel, a great book for you to consider reading would be Gentle and Lowly, which we've got copies for you on the table in the back that just expands Christ's heart for sinners and sufferers. But what I want you to walk away with this morning is resounding in your ears is that this mercy is for you. Yes, even you. And this mercy is for me. And as we'll sing in just a moment, because this mercy is for you, he invites you to come. Are you unfaithful? He invites you to come. Are you weak and unstable? He invites you to come. Are you weary of praying? He invites you to come. Are you bitter and broken? He invites you to come. Do you have fears unspoken? He invites you to come. Are you guilty and hiding? He invites you to come. So come. Though you have nothing, come. He is the offering. Come, see what God has done. Christ is born for you. Listen, we have every reason to bless the Lord, no matter our circumstances. We have every reason to praise Him for who He is and what He has done. He has visited and redeemed us. He has been faithful to keep all His promises. And in His tender mercy... He's revealed his salvation to us. So let's come to him and bless him with all our heart, with our words, with our songs, with our lives. So as we close, I want to invite you to consider what God has been saying to you through his word and respond. Perhaps these questions might help you to consider that. How does the nearness of Jesus comfort you when you're lonely? Ask him to draw near to you when you're lonely and thank him for his comfort. Who do you view as the primary enemy you need deliverance from? Is it sin and Satan or people who hate you? Ask God to help you live with hopeful anticipation of the day he'll redeem and restore all things. But until then, that he would help you to love those who hate you. Third, how is God using you to serve him without fear and holiness and in righteousness? Thank him for the ways he's using you and ask him to use you even more. And finally, how do you view God as one who is tender and mercy or one who is stern and disapproving? Bless God for his mercy. Praise him and ask him that he would help you to be awed and amazed by his tender mercy for you. Let's take a moment to consider what God has said to us in his word. I confess on our behalf that it is easy to be unmoved by these stories we've heard so many times. 
And yet, Lord, we ask this morning and this week that you would move our hearts to praise, to blessing, to awe and amazement because of what you have done. Lord, you have done so much by becoming one of us. You've done more than we could imagine by redeeming, delivering, and forgiving us. Throughout all human history, you have been working to bring about your promises, and we trust that you'll bring about all that you've promised when Christ finally returns. So, Lord, we ask you this morning, you would allow these truths to penetrate our hearts so that we would want to sing, so that we would want to rejoice, so that we would want to bless you with our hearts, with our minds, and with our words. Lord, please renew us and transform us this Christmas season to delight in Christ, who was born for us. In his name we pray. Amen.